0: Say what's happening guys. Hey, I just wanted to put out a replay on this Eastman's elevated feed. So this is a replay of Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal: Life of a Bow Hunter. So you guys have heard me talking about this uh, on this podcast, but this is a podcast that I'm doing with Dan Picard and myself, and uh, we put it out every other week. There's ten episodes out now. It's on its own feed, so you have to go find it at Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal: Life of a Bow Hunter, and can get it everywhere where podcasts are found. Uh, so, yeah, I hope you guys enjoy today's conversation. It's an important one about backcountry savvy. And um, yeah, I'll let it play from here for the intro and the podcast. And uh, if you like it, make sure to subscribe and leave a review that really helps us out and shares on social media. So, thanks, guys. Here we go. All right, Dan, early morning podcast. Uh, this is a good one. So, we talked all about safety in the backcountry today. Uh, we talked uh, grizzly bear country. We talked steep terrain, lightning storms, hypothermia made for a great back and forth.
1: It did. And just like anything, experience and failure is the best teacher. And that's what we talk about too. We we've, we've, have a lot of years of doing this, you and I, out there. And we've failed a lot. And we've made mistakes. And you learn from it and you sharpen those skills. And these are the types of conv- conversations that I enjoy because. I feel so passionate about them because they are the building blocks to a successful hunt.
0: Oh, you're so right. Like, um, y- you can't push yourselves to your limits unless you build up your your wood sense and your wood skills, unless you can make good decisions yep. and keep yourself safe. Like, Like, part of this gaining this knowledge about... Uh, safety in the backcountry is so key to being successful. It's just like keeping yourself alive and healthy back there. So, yeah, it's so important for guys, and especially as we're leading into season now. So, yeah, I thought it's a great timing for that and then a great conversation. So excited to release this one.
1: Yeah, grizzly bears, horse wrecks. We got some good stories and some good things to keep in mind on your next adventure too. So, yeah, they're always fun. Yep. For sure. Well, I want to
0: thank our sponsor for today's show. I want to thank Juniper Mountain Coffee. I am so impressed by their roasts. Their, uh, their coffee is absolutely next level. Like, uh, you know a little bit about their coffee roast or how they're choosing these things, but it tastes so good.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a premium coffee and how these guys did it is they traveled to Panama and they have working personal relationships with the growers. So they cut out the middleman, and so they bring you the best coffees, the high, highest rating coffees at an economical price. I mean, you're getting a bag of coffee for $16, that's, I mean, you couldn't buy this quality of coffee anywhere else for even close to that price. And so what they're doing is, in the coffee world is pretty awesome, and they're looking out for the consumer bottom line and so you you can't get it any better quality coffee uh guys that are born and bred out west and i mean just a a cool company so well
0: and they're they're hunters yeah and they're putting their dollars behind uh uh of people and companies that they like and that they want to support and so uh, I, I just couldn't be happier partnering with these guys that have like the the same passion as I do and that that also like this podcast, listen to the podcast and want to support it with their hard-earned dollars that they make from their coffee. So yeah, I couldn't be more impressed by these guys and then um, I can't wait till we get their instance for this season to try those because I know they're going to knock it out of the park just like they've done with their roast.
1: Yeah, a lot of new products coming up. They haven't revealed all of them but uh yeah some single servings coming up and when you can get single servings that is as quality as this stuff is definitely something to be excited for especially on those cold backcountry mornings there's nothing better than a fresh hot cup of coffee
0: oh 100 coffee makes me feel human again it can almost yeah. change my mindset on a hunt like i can be down in the dumps or rode out a big storm and i make a cup of coffee And it makes me feel like human. Like, I don't know if it's a a creature comfort or like what it is, but a cup of coffee can change the course of my hunt for sure.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks again to those guys at Juniper Mountain. We really appreciate their support uh, over here at EBJ and uh, everything over at Eastman's. And um, so, yeah, we've just been working away. I uh, saw that your um, great big bull from Wyoming released on Beyond the Grid, and uh, we have your new one coming out this Saturday. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yep. this, this Saturday already. Is this the 29th, the Saturday? It's coming up quick. Yeah, I can't remember when we're <laughs> going to release this podcast. But by
0: the time we release this podcast, it'll be out. So yes. you have your great big Wyoming bull in grizzly country, which the video is just unreal off the hook. And then uh, now next, we're going to do your Montana uh, big yep. bull that you killed, that giant wide seven.
1: Yep. Yep, incredible hunt, Uh, definitely a different type of hunt than what I'm used to. I, I never hunt elk like this, but when you're believing in the process and you're believing in the tactic for the type of country that you're hunting and you're patient, and it turned out beautifully with mm-hmm. a, a giant, the, the widest bull I've I've ever harvested, 55 inches outside. Oh my gosh! So <laughs> that's yeah, so just a monster. I knew
0: he was wide, but that's yeah. like rattle a sheet of plywood in between his horns. It's yeah,
1: crazy. Exactly. Huh. My my Wyoming bull fit inside of him. Oh my gosh! Like a baby, it looked like a little baby. Oh my gosh, that's wild.
0: Definitely not a baby, though. No, no. (laughs) But yeah, and then after that, I believe we've got a high country hunt for me coming out. So I'm going to film a couple more pieces today for it so you guys can finish up that video. So I'm really excited to see that edit. So a bunch of great new videos coming up. Make sure to support everything we do at Eastman's, the EBJ, the EHJ, which are our two magazines, which we've always got articles coming out in there. Uh, And then make sure to um, support our mule deer course. So this is something that Dan and I alongside Guy Eastman put together. Super proud of it. Uh, it's all our years of knowledge, traveling and hunting mule deers. Uh, it, it's just got so much information in it. And, and um, man, it's such like a, a deal. You get to cut your learning curve and by the price of, uh, of this course cut your learning curve by years uh, just by walking through this course and the videos in it so man it's just awesome
1: yeah. yeah mule deer tags are harder and harder to come by and you have to take advantage of them to their fullest mm-hmm. and that's what we wanted to do with this mule deer course is to uh, help guys jump into mule deer hunting and even if you're a veteran hunter too just to sharpen your skill set at an expedited expedited rate to help you become more successful.
0: Yep, and, and we have a promo code right now as well. So if you put in uh, uh, Brian MDC, that'll get you uh, our kill kit, an Outdoor Edge knife, some Black Ovis game bags. It'll also yep. get you ten dollars off the course uh, summer promo. So right now's the time to get it.
1: It is preseason uh, with all, all the, the giveaways that we're doing. Your name goes in the hat for a mule deer hunt too to win a mule deer hunt. So that's awesome too. So it's it's go time.
0: Yep. Absolutely. Check out our other podcasts that we have going. Of course, we have Eastman's Elevated that most of you guys listen to. Uh, Ike also has a podcast out there. It's a EHJ or Eastman's Hunting Journal Podcast Edition. Check that out. And um, man, we'll just be working away and trying to get to, to season here. We only got a few weeks left. It'll be fun.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. It goes quick and I'm getting more and more excited.
0: Oh yeah, I can't wait. Well, let's get into this backcountry safety uh, Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal. I'm Brian Barney. Dan Bacar, here we go. Let's do it. Good morning, Dan.
1: Morning. How are you? That's no, good. You came down this time.
0: Yes, I did. Yeah, over to the office. So figured we'd sit down and record a couple live ones while I'm down here. It'll be good.
1: Heck yeah. These are always not that recording over Skype is hard. No. But face to face, you can't beat it.
0: Face-to-face yeah. is always better, and I, I really prefer to do these for the majority of the podcast, but I also think it's so important to be talking and releasing these things close to the same time, because then we're talking about the pertinent information for Western bow hunters out there. So, uh, yeah, it'll be a balance, but I definitely like being here at the
1: office recording live. Definitely. I, I think it, it makes all the millennials and younger nervous face-to-face, right? <laughs> it's like the, the Tinder effect. You hear these kids, they can't like have a conversation. Conversation when yeah. they go on dates anymore yeah because they're so used to phones and stuff so oh isn't yeah. that the truth well and
0: even the the text messages like we're a bit of the older generation is where I just want to call and have a phone call it's yeah. gonna take way longer to type these texts back and forth and to get our point across let me just call you let's just talk over the phone we'll work this thing out in 10 minutes you know but that's uh, a bit of the old school for sure it
1: is it is you see these kids not that I'm bad at texting but you see these kids fingers and they're just going 90 miles an hour I'm like geez you just typed a paragraph dude yeah I'd rather just talk on the phone (laughs) (laughs) no doubt well you have to watch these things too
0: like uh even these phones no matter which generation you're from they're so addictive and they're made that way right and so uh like you catch yourself like uh, turning on your phone or like opening an app you didn't mean mean to open. Like all of a sudden you open your phone and you're scrolling through some app and you're like, what the heck? I went on here to get a phone number or I went on here to, to look up something. So like, I think we all have to keep ourselves in check with our phone and just make sure that we're living life, enjoying like the experiences that we're having, not constantly trying to capture it for some post or some video, but really living life and turning our phones off. Like how good does that feel
1: when you have a full day or a couple days with your phone off. It's amazing. It is. It is and it's it's so it's foreign territory nowadays. You know because everything like e- emails to apps to I mean you can do it on your phone. You don't really need a desktop anymore unless you're editing video or whatever. But I think you know we get like you said addicted to these things and then you get into the back country and like you kind of feel naked if you're not in service. Like I've seen it with camera guys in the past. And it, you got to be kind of careful, but you have to be able to be okay when you're hunting backcountry, be okay with being out of cell service so you can't get on your apps. Mm-hmm. It's a thing now. It, it was never a thing back in the day. I didn't think twice about it. There was nothing better than going into the backcountry, working for the Forest Service, being out of cell signal for six weeks at a time. Mm-hmm. And you get back and it like, felt weird to drive a truck like stick shift, you know, because you're just it's horseback travel. And then phones, like getting on the phone, your apps and stuff. Talk about a nice break. And, you know, granted, that was the the later aughts of the 2000s. -hmm. And, you know, we didn't have these fancy smartphones. But still, those breaks are super nice. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. and you see,
0: you know, in restaurants or even in your home life, like you can have all your family there and everybody's on their devices or not engaging. And so you have to make it a point like I I make it a point when I'm off work at five o'clock, like my phone goes back in my bedroom, back in, uh, you know, like my uh, table that sits next to my my bedstand or whatever. Yep. A- and then, you know, I can engage with my family and we can have dinner and we can laugh and make jokes uh, because if you're sitting on your phone the whole time, it's like life is passing you by and you start using up like all those moments that... Uh, you know, you're just not bored. If you're waiting in line, you're on your phone. If you're sitting waiting for something, you're on your phone. But it doesn't give you time to, like, sit with yourself or sit and think anymore, you know? And, and and even, you know, when you're driving or when you're on the road, just always having something on. Like, you don't get a chance to really sit and think about your life or your direction or your family. You just don't get time to ponder that anymore. And so, yeah, as, as um, we're in this new day and age, like, you have to make it a point to turn your phone off to leave your phone to go have an adventure for a day fishing or hunting and turn your phone off and not have it for a day or two like i think that's really good for the human mind
1: it is and, it, and especially if, if you need your phone for work i get that you mm-hmm. know like brandon he's you know talking to advertisers and he's always on his phone but setting aside that time like what you're talking about i think is excellent cross training for hunting season because uh, you've seen it. You've been with guys hunting in the backcountry. You're out of cell service for a day or two. They start getting nervous. And and so being able to, to get used to being out of cell service, even if it's for an evening, depending on your job and the type of person you are, I think that's great. Mm-hmm. That's oh, you great. make a really good point i've been with a lot of guys and you can start to see that addiction come through where
0: guys will hike up a mountain to get service or if you're camping someplace you can just start to hear those questions so no service tonight it's like no no service tonight you know and boy they um they start losing their minds you know it's like uh i I think it is good to train your brain to get away from it and even like they are really good for work and handling things in real time and i can handle emails Uh, But just make a time for it. It doesn't have to be all day, every day. Like I tell my clients, you know, like uh, a great time to reach me is in between six and eight in the morning. And other than that, I'm on site and don't have my phone on me or won't be answering calls or I'll answer them in the evening. But after six o'clock, my phone's off or I'm not answering calls and you know, you get some grace there too. You don't have to answer everything as it comes right in. You can yeah. wait and you can handle it tomorrow morning. You can wait and call somebody back in the evening and they have to be understanding of that
1: because um, I'm just not going to be so addicted to my phone. Exactly. That's smart. That's smart. I think it's just a good mental practice, like you said, all around You know, family practice, being with your family and being engaged with your family, you know, like being there. Mm-hmm. So I think that's incredibly healthy to... You know, adapt some mm-hmm. of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, we didn't set out to do a tech talk the, this morning on <laughs> cell phones,
0: but uh, that's kind of the way our podcast goes is whatever whatever comes up. But, yeah, I just heard a story, uh, Targy Pass, a woman just died from a grizzly bear attack there. And I thought, like, as we're leading into season and we've talked so much about pushing our limits mentally and physically and how to be effective in the mountains, but I thought it'd be really good to talk about some of the dangers and some of the safety in the backcountry. Because, I mean, it's part of the reason why that place is so rewarding is that it's not nerfed, that your decisions directly affect your safety and that you have to make good decisions, have good wood sense. And I think like a lot of my enjoyment comes from that, but that's also, there is risk there. And so I thought it'd be good to sit down and talk about it. So to start off, grizzly bears, man, that woman just got attacked by Targhee Pass, which is close to uh, where I hunt. And um, man, it's too bad. I I didn't hear the full story yet, but it sounds like she was a trail runner and got attacked by a bear. Uh, But I, I saw more grizzly bears this season and this spring that I've ever seen like there's a ton of them in the mountains and it's a real danger out there it
1: is it is and it it's been crazy like that for the last 20 years more or less and especially in some of these core areas but seeing more grizzlies and black bear spring bear hunting in this neck of the woods you know the Cody Wyoming area and southern Montana Um, but but yeah it's you know it's classic what happens when you don't hunt apex predator that's part of you know when everything else management wise is part of the western hunting conservation model where you know all these animals need management except for you know we have the this this species off to the side that has you know special designation and it does it just doesn't work just doesn't work and now we're seeing you know bears show up in the breaks mm-hmm. uh, in prior mountains you know, they're showing up and documented now.
0: It, it doesn't make any sense, right? It's like you're trusting the science and, and uh, biologists to manage these populations. But then you say, oh, but grizzly bears are hands off. Like you guys can manage the sheep and goats and deer and elk and black bears. You guys manage everything else. But but uh, grizzly bears, no, we don't want your input there. You guys can't manage those. We're going to federally uh, manage those and, and then protect those. And, and and the truth of the matter is, is the population are healthy enough now and they don't have any natural predators and so they're just populating every drainage so places where I've never seen grizzly bears or grizzly bear tracks that I've hunted forever now those drainages have a sow and a cub in them now they have a sow and two cubs and then you know a lot of these cubs I'm seeing are two and three year old cubs that are going to be on their own and make new families and those sows are going to breed again like the population is just exploding And, and so hunting grizzly bears or hunting grizzly bear country it's really rewarding because it is the wild west like there is real monsters out there that you have to keep yourself safe and the the longer we do it the more comfortable we get in that country and that's not to say that a bad scenario like eventually it's a matter of time where we are going to run into a bad scenario somehow some way and have to handle that but uh grizzly bear country is wild country it makes for really good hunting because not as many guys want to hunt in that country um but there's some real dangers out there and so as far as bear safety um like i guess i just start by saying like you know not all bears are out there to hunt you like it's special circumstances like nine out of ten bears want to run away from you and so Uh, When I'm in bear country, you know, uh, hunting with groups or buddies really keeps things safe. Multiple people uh, uh, is just going to deter a bear attack more so than a solo person. So definitely multiple people is like something I do. Uh, And and then it's just head on a swivel. I'm really looking for these bears. And if I see a bear in the area, I'm going to avoid that area. I'm looking for sign. I'm trying to avoid that sign as well or keep myself out of it. And for me, I want to keep out of the 100 yards. I feel like 100 yards on a grizzly bear is fight or flight, and I don't want that bear to have to make that choice. And so I'm trying to keep out of that 100-yard buffer. And so if I run into a grizzly bear if he doesn't see me or doesn't win me, I'm just going to back out of there. I'm not even going to let him know I'm there. Uh, now, if that bear's knows I'm there, is coming into a call or walking towards me, you know, then I'm going to have to make myself known as a human and wave my arms and, hey, bear, hey, bear, and start talking to that bear and let him know I'm a human. And then from there, hopefully he makes the right choice. So that's kind of like my first rules in in uh, like bear country is what I'm doing. Like, what are some of the things that you're doing in bear country?
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's all good stuff. And I wanted to note too, I found that the closer you get to Yellowstone, the less and less bears care about human presence. And I, it's just a learned behavior over, you know, the years of, of being in contact or being around people, grizzly bears. But, uh, yeah, it's it's weird. It seems like the ratio of bears that are aggressive and don't care about human presence is exponentially greater the closer to the park you get. So that being said, yeah, all good stuff. I man, I don't like to be traveling around country, and it's hard too because you know you're you're being sneaky when you're in the elk woods, right? You don't want to be stomping around all the time, but trying not to, you know, work cover and stay close to cover. Like if I if I need to travel a distance or whatever I'm, I'm going to travel terrain where I can see my surroundings that's a good point and and not like get bottlenecked down into into tight cover with with something so if I do sh- you know jump something in that close quarters you're probably in trouble and those are the guys that are getting hit quickest is when those bears are close and they have to make a decision and usually they're going to come at you if you're in that tight you know quarters with one when you start a one now obviously you can't always walk around like that in ideal situations and and minimal cover Uh, but I do I do that when I can and then I always have bear spray and a pistol Um, I, I like to have both because after you empty a magazine if you don't have an extra magazine which I highly recommend now what do you have and you you hear of these attacks these bears they come in for one two three rounds at you and guys empty their bear spray then they have nothing or they empty their pistol and now they have nothing and so to to have two means of deterrent I think's very important and you know that that's you know obviously hopefully you don't get to that point but um you know like I said it's hard hunting you're playing the wind is in your favor so if you have the wind in your favor that's kind of a no-no because the first thing, you know, the strongest sense a bear has is his nose. Mm-hmm. If he smells you, it, it's probably going to be from a ways away. If he's downwind from you and he's going to be gone most of the time. And it makes me wonder how many bears that I don't see that I blow out, that I don't hear that I blow out. And, like, luckily on, on my last episode, my Wyoming episode, I let out a bugle and then I heard the crashing. You can see it in the video. You hear the crashing and I'm like, What is I'm trying to like get a pinpoint of where the sound's coming from when I stand up, and there's a grizzly bear running away, and at that time I think he was downwind from me, so he smelled me, but he was coming into the call. I mean, that's what they're keying in on. And so, man, you got to keep your head on a swivel. Head on a swivel. Pay attention. A lot of these attacks happen before people
0: can even get their pistol or their bear spray out. So making sure that you're ready. And when you do run into a bear, it is drawing your pistol and making sure that, um, you know, you're ready because they can run at 35 miles an hour. Like, it's going to happen quick. And also practicing with your pistol, um, you know, and I've I've mentioned like that charge of a, a black bear. I've actually been charged by a couple. I know you have too. But. You know, I did not shoot well when that thing charged me. And luckily, I had an arrow through the lungs, but I shot nine times and hit him twice and grazed him once. Like I didn't find my sights until the seventh shot, you know. And so those pistols are really accurate, but making sure you're practicing. And then one of my. My uh, like the biggest things I practice with is drawing my pistol and finding my sights. So uh, I have my pistol all unloaded, uh, double, triple check, everything's unloaded. I have it in the holster on my side. Uh, I caulk it so, it's, it's, uh, so the trigger's live, so I can dry fire the trigger. And then I practice my draw, sights, acquire target, squeeze trigger back in. And so I practice that draw and then I practice a one-handed draw and just make sure that I'm finding my sights that I can make that shot. And then I do that with live fire as well. But really running rounds through your pistol. It's not an automatic that you're just going to be this great shot with a pistol when a grizzly bear is charging. So I really work with my pistol and I'm like you. For a lot of years, I just carried bear spray and would go all over grizzly bear country. But after I started hunting black bears with my bow and I've been charged a couple times and I realized that I have like this responsibility to come home to my family every time. And so uh, a pistol is a big part of that and also a bright light for at night. And whether that's a light that fits on your pistol, which it's tough to find a holster that also holds a light. Uh, But even just a a really good headlamp, like you can get a dim headlamp where you can't see but 10 feet in front of you, or you get a headlamp that lights up the woods everywhere around you 40 yards, like that makes me feel a lot more safe, like being able to see what's right around me. But yeah, you definitely want to practice with the pistol and practice with the bear spray too. It's like waste one of the old cans or an expired can to to shoot off. Because when these bears charge, what I learned too is like I always thought I would shoot a bear right in the chest as he charged, they charge with their head down and yep. they're so low to the ground that the one I had to hit with an arrow, I hit behind the head into the neck, down into the lungs that way. And so I think being prepared for a charging bear with that bear spray is you're supposed to lay a fog at the ground right in front of you that they run through. Yep. So if you actually spray the bear at 35 miles an hour, by the time the spray gets to it, he's already through it into you. So you want to lay a fog like in front of you. So I think it's important to practice with That as well. Yep,
1: absolutely. We did that video a few years ago, you know, how to survive a bear attack. And that's, you know, some, you bring up some good points about, you know, how they charge. And that black bear that charged me kind of did the same thing head down. And I ended up shooting them in the forehead at five feet on a dead run because, yeah, you have no shot at the vitals. But that too, practicing with bear spray, and that's huge, that's a huge tip right there, is you're spraying the ground in front of that bear. And just how, how it billows out of there as you spray it, it kind of rises. It, it billows out, it shoots, and then it rises up anyway. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, getting that practice. And it's, it's easy to become complacent, you know, especially with pistol shooting. And, you know, I, I practice a fair amount. I started shooting pistols at a young age, very young. And so you think, like, yeah, I'm good, you know. But even last year, I'm, I'm kicking myself. I'm an idiot. I didn't even practice one day last year, last summer, before season and i go into grizzly bear country with a pistol but you know am i comfortable with the gun yeah but you have to it's a it's a what's the word i'm looking for a degradable skill Mm -hmm. if you're not using it if you're not honing it you lose it you really do and after you know a year of say not touching my my bear gun my 10 millimeter You feel a little clumsy out at the range. I was just out there about a month ago testing out that Savage 1911, that new 45, uh, which shoots excellent, by the way. I'm stoked to have that gun. But, like, you feel a little bit clumsy, and then once you shoot a couple mags through, then you're like, yeah, I'm feeling good. And then, you know, you get a few more mags through, and maybe shooting some moving targets and doing some practice like you're talking, or maybe some walk shooting, or, you know, somebody rolling some targets at you or something that's when you're really getting that comfort that mm-hmm. you need before you venture out mm-hmm. and just knowing where the sights are
0: too yeah. that a lot of times you have to aim a touch low with those pistols because of the kick or because of the way the sights are set up or whatever the case but if yep. you're putting it right on that bear like on his forehead like you hit that one you're probably shooting high yeah yeah so like uh you almost want to hold just a touch low but learning how your pistol shoots is is so important
1: so. yeah some of these the new you know the, the plastic guns in the glocks and of a springfield XDS 45 that's one of those where you hold your sights below the target so you can see your target but you know to most people you're, that's shooting high right and so knowing that gun and then whereas the savage 1911 where you hold your sights it hits right on to that front sight when it's lined up so yeah completely different but that's why we go out there we're sighting it in and i was shooting some of those hornady uh 45 acp plus p's Mm-hmm. And, you know, just getting ready because that's what I'm going to use, you know, this year mm-hmm. is those 45 plus P's and seeing how they shoot mm-hmm. and, and knowing where my hold is. And then after that, it's not like I'm blowing through all that ammo. Then I'm shooting, you know, just plinking ammo, some FMJs and just getting that comfort and breaking that gun in and, and just feeling comfortable. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, it's, it's just like your bow you have to become proficient with your weapon so it feels like an ex- it's an extension of your arm 100% otherwise you're just you're live bait for those bears. Out there. <laughs> live bait. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, um, you
0: know, those bears, I know not everybody's hunting grizzly bear country, but, um, it's also like traveling at dark. So you have to hunt the right way to be at the right places, but in bear country, you have to be a little bit more cognizant of not wanting to travel a ton of miles in the dark. And so, you know, I, I'm just, I, I'll choose to go in in the afternoon and sleep in a spot and look at it that evening, the next morning, hike out in the daylight, you know, traveling during daylight, trying not to travel as much during the dark where I'm going to run into those, one of those things in a bad scenario. And then also uh, just keeping a clean camp, like uh, being diligent and disciplined of hanging your food or storing your food away from where you're sleeping every night. Uh, So it's easy to get complacent, lazy, haven't seen a bear is to just throw that food in the end of your tent, which is the, the wrong thing to do, which can attract that thing at night, which would be an absolute nightmare. So it's really important. You don't eat in your tent. You don't cook in your tent. You, Make your cooking spot 100 yards downwind of your tent. So downwind at night is usually going to be down the drainage a little bit. So making sure that you're just being real disciplined where you cook, where you eat, uh, and then, where you store your food, and doing that every single night, uh, just because that would be the worst case scenario. And then, when I'm camping too, I try to think about the way grizzly bears move through country. So, I'm trying to stay off the ridgelines, I'm trying to stay off the main trails, and even out of the main parks and meadows where they'll travel through the edges. Is I kind of want to get back in that thick cover a little bit in the downfall timber and just get back in there a couple hundred yards. And then, if anything comes in, at night, like I can hear sticks crack or there's really no reason for a grizzly bear to be in there traveling that country at night. They're going to be out on the ridgelines or parks, but that's another something that I do with my camping
1: locations. Yep. Yep. That's a, that's a good little tip. And and what I've done too in the past is... If, if I have, if, or if I can find like a natural barrier to butt my tent up against, yes. knowing that, you know, a grizzly bear can't approach me from this direction. When I'm in my tent at night, I have my door of the tent right here. I'm like, okay, I can shoot this way. I can't shoot this way because the horses are over here and I have a rock wall over here. So I'm pretty good. So if anything is going to get me or get to me, I'm going to be shooting down at my feet and then... You know, the horses are probably going to alert me anyway. But if I don't have horses, it just gives you one less direction that a bear can get you from. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I, I think about that stuff. I do too. I'll actually drag
0: logs and sticks and block some trails and yep. lay some sticks down and things so my campsite is tougher to get into for a bear yep. than where, you know, I'm either going to hear him or he's not going to use that trail because I've set a log and a bunch of sticks that kind of block this trail to the backside of my tent so he doesn't approach from behind me. But yeah, I'll set up my camp that way too.
1: Guys that, you know, live around here and they run the hills a lot, They they also... You know, it's all about a clean camp, but they they never, never stay in the designated camp areas, especially like the horse camps. Like you talk to these guys, these locals that have run this country for 20, 30 years. Never, never, never do they stay at a designated campsite because those bears are habituated to make the rounds. Because number one, they're off the main trail, so it's easy going. But they make the rounds and they check the fire pits. And so if you talk to guys, the ones that have encounters or have bears in their camp are the designated campsites. Oh, you're
0: so right. I didn't think about that. But as you mention it, I can think of an outfitter camp that has bears that come into the cook tent, come in at night. Like it gets really spooky, but they've been camping in the same spot 20, 30 years. So you're
1: right, those bears know. I hadn't thought about that, but that's a good tip. And it's kind of crazy to say too, but I don't like using designated meat poles either because the bears know they're there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it depends on where the country, you know, is at where you're hunting and, and how much use these meat poles actually get. But and sometimes you do find very remote meat poles that don't get used very often that even this forest service has put in place. But once again, these are, these are areas that you know, over the years, bears are habituated to smelling the meat and they visit these, these places. And so, you know, knock on wood, all the years I've been doing this here, you know, with, with those tactics in mind, I've never had a problem. Yep. I've never had a bear in camp and I've had some sketchy situations where I kill an elk and then, you know, you try to stay clean when you're butchering these things up, but you know, blood squirts on your whatever boots pants get blood on it and you're like frick i'm not bringing this stuff in the tent and so i've even like taken that stuff and placed it 100 yards from my tent just because i don't want you know bloody boots by my tent smart and anything cruising by is going to smell that and check it out and you know i i haven't had any issues with that and and once again i i really try to get out of country as quick as i can once i kill an elk because the more time you're there it's just it's just a game it's just yep. a waiting game the more time you're spending in there the higher odds you have at a bear smelling it and finding it eventually and coming in well the the two worst scenarios that you're going
0: to run into with bears is going to be a sow with cubs or it's going to be a grizzly bear that's claimed a carcass and is protecting it because they attack just right now to protect yep. that carcass so you're right like uh, uh, that's the biggest danger zone for me is when I kill elk in bear country And you're spot on with just getting that thing out as quick as possible. Uh, Keeping your head on a swivel as you're butchering or processing. If you've got a buddy, sometimes I won't even have my buddy cutting on the elk. It's just like you look out for us. You have your pistol out. You hold a leg for me or whatever. Let me do the cutting and and then keeping an eye out there. And then getting that meat away from the gut pile too, you know. And then when I set my meat or stash it, because I may have to make multiple trips, Uh, I'm going to stash it in a place where I can come up over the hill and I can glass it. Make sure that there hasn't been a bear in there. Make sure he hasn't torn up. Look to make sure my meat isn't buried or something isn't fishy there so I can kind of see it in the open. Uh, You know, definitely helps. But yeah, that is, um, that's like the... The 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 most likely spot to have an encounter or a bad encounter is, like, when you're processing an elk. Yeah. So that's when you really got to have your head on a swivel.
1: And that's a tough one because you're you're going to be exposed. You're going to be susceptible to an attack. And it, that's what happened a couple of years ago over by Jackson, that guide and the hunter. And the guide got mauled and, that's right. and killed. And it's funny. This, with this Wyoming elk episode, this guy commented and he was busting my balls about it because I got up to my bull and i took my bear spray off you know my vinyl harness and i got all that gear off me and my pistol was at my backpack but my camera guy he's got a pistol and bear spray as well so it's not like i'm running naked but he's busting my balls he's like clearly you didn't learn anything about that guide that got killed in jackson a couple of years ago while cleaning an elk he says you, you were completely exposed you threw your, your bear spray down you're an idiot and it's like okay but you know, I had my bear spray with me and, and Joe had, you know, his stuff too, but ultimately there's going to be periods during a hunt that you're going to be, your guard is going to be off. And it's just, I mean, I could have died in a horse wreck that day too. I could have broken my ankle that day too. I could have fallen off a cliff that day too, but I didn't. And I think if you can just maximize the time, you know, and when we're cutting elk and gutting, you know, like you said, it's, it's nice hunting with a buddy, his head's on a swivel while I can do work, but you're, you're not going to, I mean, you, you minimize the the amount of time that, you know, you let your guard down, but It's something good to think about. I mean, he brings up a good point. Brings up a good point. He didn't quite bring it up the right way. Like the internet, sometimes everybody
0: is pretty quick to pass judgment on what you're doing. Don't realize there's a cameraman there with his equipment. or uh, There was just a a different way to kind of talk about that rather
1: than calling you out on the video. It's all good. It it is all good. I don't care because Uh, I wouldn't have changed a thing. I would have done the same thing again. Um, just with the scenario, and I made sure Joe has a gun, and he's proficient with a gun too. Mm-hmm. He is, and so we would have been fine. Mm-hmm. But I mean, he he makes up a good point, but I probably wouldn't have changed anything. Like if I should have had my gun on me. Mm-hmm. Like if you want to, you know, really get nitpicky, I would rather have a gun that I'm proficient with than bear spray. A, a bear spray.
0: It It's highly effective in all the studies they've done, and it, it can stop a charge. But, you know, there's also a lot of cases of these bears running through it if the wind's blowing wrong. And then also, you realize you have to wait till they're at 15 feet or 5 yards before you spray. That is nerves of steel. And, yeah. you know, do the math on 35 miles an hour at 5 yards. You know, you, you have seconds or maybe even less than seconds before that bear hits you. Um, so, yeah, I definitely... Um, Nowadays, I feel more comfortable with uh, having a pistol, definitely in grizzly bear country to yeah. know I can defend myself and also the noise of it. A lot of times you can fire a warning shot uh, and spook that bear off, you know, um, uh, that sound of it will spook them and, and then just being proficient, you know, with that thing and, and knowing you can trust it. But, um, yeah. well, that's just one of the challenges we face in the back country. Like, um, you know, we want to go so hard and challenge ourselves, but there's a bit of proficiency that you need to gain with the woods and your comfort level and decision making when hunting the woods like when hunting the mountains um, just to keep yourself safe back there and that's from everything from uh, you know also just like hypothermia and um, heat stroke exhaustion sickness like all this stuff uh, can kill you way quicker than a grizzly bear can or can be just as dangerous and some of these you know guys aren't thinking about so maybe we'll start with hypothermia and hypothermia it doesn't have to be 20 below to get hypothermia. If you don't have the right clothing or if your clothing gets wet, like there's no just dipping in undercover when you're in the mountains. Sometimes you get in these rainstorms that are just so soaking wet that even wearing rain gear you're going to get wet or I don't bring a lot of rain pants and so the rain off my rain jacket to my pants can then get me wet and sometimes these storms can last a day or longer you know where it doesn't just blow over in an hour and it doesn't warm up and it cools down like hypothermia is a major concern and so like I'd say there it's like really just working through your gear system really working through your shelter to make sure that you can get your shelter dry and a lot of these these tents that I stay in are bivy tents, single wall design. And you have to also make sure that the water that drains off the tent doesn't drain back underneath the tent and get your sleeping bag wet. Uh, also having like a, a waterproof bags for your sleeping bag, for uh, your clothing so that you always have that dry clothing. But there, there's so much that
1: goes into it. But boy, you can get in a real tough situation really quick with cold weather. Absolutely. And, and where I feel like the most extreme environments is where you can get, you know, in trouble the quickest, uh, you know, hunting mule deer in the high country at 10,000 feet. I mean, you know how fast that weather can change and th- those temperature swings. And even, like you say, even early season, you get one of those storms that, that roll in and it goes from 75 to 55 with hail and even colder. And then you get wet and maybe you didn't plan that day with good clothes yeah i've i've i haven't been in trouble but, uh, you know, I've had the gear with me, and I and sit there and think about it. It's so like, man, a guy could be in trouble if you didn't have the good enough gear or you couldn't get dry or stay out of this weather. Like, a guy could get in trouble pretty quick. I think those early season are some yeah. of the most dangerous, you know, just because yeah. it is
0: so warm when you leave and there may, may not be a cloud in the sky, but that stuff yeah. can build so quick. And those storms come in, and it cools down so much. So, yeah, I haven't been in bad trouble that I can't get out of, but I've definitely been in some situations that get a bit sketchy, like having to set up tent, and riding out some major storms, or uh, like one of the scenarios that I run into is when I go on a mule deer stock a lot of times I like to go lightweight and just fill my pockets with my kill kit, my knives, my, my game bags, and I'll go on this stock on this animal. And then all of a sudden the storm starts building and I didn't even see it coming or see it starting. And now I'm in a rainstorm and I don't even have my rain jacket with me. And so I've made a hard rule where now, you know, I tie my rain jacket uh, around my waist or I bring it in my pack and then I'll ditch my pack a couple hundred yards from the mule deer before I stalk wherever it is. But to always have my rain jacket because it's a bit of uh, a security or it's like just a just to know that I can ride out any storm with my rain jacket is super important and so like a lot of this is just decisions you're making like your wood sense comes down to your mind and making sure you're prepared and if it it is a big storm where I've made mistakes too is I've slept on the top of the mountain where there's lightning you know and I've really learned my lesson with lightning where now I camp in safe spots where I can ride out storms but prior I would camp up high and then I would have a a lightning plan and I'd say, well, if the lightning gets really bad, I'm leaving my camp and I'm going to go down a few hundred feet and then I'm going to ride out the storm there in my rain jacket. And so having to do that at night, but just having this mega storm come in and I'm in a rain jacket, not in my tent, which isn't as good of a shelter where then my pants and my underwear get all soaked from the rain draining from my rain jacket to where now I'm soaking wet and I have to be away from my tent for three, four hours in the middle of the night during this lightning storm. It isn't worth it for me. I'd just rather camp down (laughs) off the peaks a little bit. But you definitely have to look where you camp to. And having a bomb-proof shelter that you can get in
1: and out of those storms to ride out those big ones is super important. Yeah, for sure. And have you noticed, too, like camping in old growth? uh, I try to, if I can, camp in old growth, you know, big canopies or... Depending on the tree, I'll camp under a tree just mm-hmm. for that extra shelter. Or if you know the the weather is coming from the west most of the time, I'll put that big tree in between my tent and the west. You That's know, smart. Yeah, just in case you know a windstorm or whatever comes through. But it all does play a huge factor.
0: Oh, under a tree is so much better than exposed out in the open. And that goes for riding out storms too. And my rain jacket, I always find the best trees to kind of get under and ride out the storm and, and lightning, you don't want to be under the biggest tree for sure. But if you can be under the canopy and then choose a tree in there some limbs that kind of protect you, I think that's pretty smart. And the, the lightning danger is real. Like you, you have to watch out. These like you get to be part weatherman, trying to gauge where these storms are coming from. You see them building, and if they're going to hit you or not, and trying to plan your day around them so you don't yeah. get track trapped on a high ridge or a high peak or in a bad spot. Because lightning is way different at ten, eleven thousand feet
1: than it is in the comfort of your rig or your house or something like it is a real out there. Absolutely, uh, in the, on those high country hunts. I'll even plan out my days, like you said, around the storms. If I know the forecast shows afternoon storms, my windows in the morning, I might press a little harder in the morning knowing that my afternoon could be shot
0: hundred percent, man. Yeah.
1: I uh, We've got a new beyond the grid coming in a couple weeks
0: that I hunted the high country in Nevada. And that's exactly what I did is we talk about these second beds for mule deer, but I knew that was an epic storm coming in that day. And I betted that buck in his first bed and I sent it and went for him and read the winds really well and ended up killing that buck in his first bed. And then that afternoon, the storms blew in and I would have had no chance. it would have messed up the winds and then it just rain and lightning. I had no chance. So you're right planning your day around that strategically when you're going to press on a mule deer
1: makes a difference and it paid off for me last year definitely and two did you see what i've seen in the past too but on your nevada hunt did you see that when you get those strong storms those deer they kind of move off those slopes and those aspects and they get down in the timber mm-hmm. and it, it just kind of shuffles the cards a little bit if you get one of those big you see the same thing mm-hmm. just makes it tougher anyway yeah it does yeah it shuffles the deck yep i've seen um A lot of times
0: those mule deer aren't phased by lightning. I think they're used to it up there, but I've also seen it strike close to those mule deer where it was like somebody shooting at them where I watched seven bucks just explode out of these trees, you know, and (laughs) running downhill as quick as they can. They look like me running from the lightning, you know? (laughs) Nobody likes lightning. Yeah, no, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, so planning your day around it. And then, too, with your camping spots, I've just gotten way better at camping down off the peaks, off the ridgelines on these high country hunts in places where I can ride out the storms. You're just so much more comfortable down there. Uh, and, and then two, like where you set your camp, like one of the biggest things are like trees falling or branches falling, like really looking around for, we call them widow makers, but for leaning trees, making sure your tent isn't under leaning trees. Cause I've had to ride out some wild wind storms back there too, that knock down trees and branches and all kinds of stuff. And so I think it's really important to watch that. And then also stay out of those burns. Those burns during a windstorm yeah. are the scariest places to be. There's trees falling all around you, you know, uh, so I, I think um, just really make sure that your
1: campsite is a safe location as well. Yeah, that's that's huge. I hunt a lot of burns down here in Wyoming, and and uh, it's the number one safety concern in my opinion, even if it is grizzly country. But at night, you're completely helpless. Oh my gosh, there's no defense. <laughs> and so if you're if you're not calculated with where you put your tent. Yeah, they call them widow makers, widow makers for a reason. And, and yeah, it's, it's, sometimes it can be hard. And, and it stinks camping in that country too because to be safe, you have to camp out in the open you know, to get away from all the snags or the leaners or whatever. So I, I go for the meadows. I got to look for meadows. And one hunt, it's been four years ago. I would never camp here. I would never camp to where I camped in any other place. But that burnt timber was so nasty and so many leaners and trees falling all the time. But the elk are right there. So I was like, okay, this is where we're camping. But I camped out in the middle of a meadow. And it was, it was almost marshy. And it just sucked. It was like the worst place to camp. But I would rather deal with that for a day or two than be in a sketchy spot and, you know, risk it, basically. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's and camping out there for, for whatever reason, all that thick grass, the mice were just all over my stuff through my backpack ate oh my, my cookies gosh. I mean you name it <laughs> Like it was insane with yeah, mice yeah. <laughs> for what that's worth. When the grass collects dew at night yeah.
0: too. And so like the forest floor is definitely better than that grass. That grass tends to get everything wet and a bunch of moisture as well. But yeah, when you're talking about safety and leaners and in a burn area, that's where you have to camp. Yeah. And so it's super important. And, and also just getting proficient with your wood sense, right? Is like, um, knowing like when you're getting cold, how to keep moving to keep yourself warm or being able to like assess your yourself because once it goes too far towards hypothermia or too far towards heat stroke it's tough to save yourself so like yeah. really being able to monitor your body and um and keep yourself in check that way and then you know it's also like um uh you know like being in this country that would sense you know, everybody knows how to build a fire, but really carrying that fire starter with you and starting a fire in a damp forest is way different than starting it in a dry forest. And so making sure, like I've always got fire starters with me. I've always got, you know, lighters, some waterproof matches, a couple different means to start fire. But the knowledge is is so powerful, knowing that those red pine limbs are going to light up really quick and start a fire. So as you're walking around collecting some of those or knowing that if the wood gets Gets wet, that you can take your knife and you can shave off and get down to that dry wood in those sticks and then shave off a couple shavings that'll take off. But I mean, I've sat and had a lighter or even had stuff to make a fire, but after one of those damp snows or those huge rainstorms, it can be a real challenge to make a fire so making sure you're well versed in that as a lot of times like the fire is your safety to be able to warm yourself up or dry your gear out after a big storm, but uh, knowing that as well um, uh,
1: just adds confidence to the hunt definitely it's something to practice it It's funny you bring that up i added a a new topic to the mule deer course under basic safety and during bear season, it was just dumping rain like every day. And we were out there and I was like, this is a perfect scenario to see if I can build a fire with nothing but a lighter. And so we built a video. So if you haven't, you know, subscribed to the Eastman's online mule deer course, go check it out. We have our special going on 10 bucks off. You get a knife game bags and your name goes in the hat for a mule deer hunt. But I add, add new topics all the time. And that was one of them. And even with those red needles and everything being waterlogged, it, it wasn't easy. Mm-mm. And, you know, you know, kind of if you've done it enough, you kind of know what's going to work and like your, your tips that you're talking. But if, it's, it was good practice for me. If you're not out there practice, practicing it until you absolutely need it, that's bad juju. Mm-hmm. Like you need to practice before you'll ever think you'll need a fire in that scenario. And it, it can save your life hundred percent and sometimes yeah. you gather up all those materials
0: and you go for your fire you may even have fire starter and it doesn't light and you're fighting it you're fighting you're fighting it start over yeah. go find new yeah. materials start over you know take a minute like just collect yourself you know uh but it it all comes down to those materials you know it's it like does. uh being able to find some dry materials somewhere to get that thing lit off so yeah that that's super important i know like hunting that those high country mule deer too uh, well, any animal for that matter, elk, or just the gnarly terrain that you're going to face. I think, um, you know, some training preseason to make sure that your ankles are strong and legs can handle it because it's such rough and rugged terrain up there. You just don't want to twist an ankle or have an injury up there. Uh, so I think it's like getting your body used to that, whether that's rucking before season or some trail running or just making sure that uh, your body's ready for the challenge as well. And And then you have to make good decisions in that steep country. Like no mule deer is worth dying for. And I get myself in some steep terrain. And, you know, I've, I've got myself in too sketchy of terrain before. And it's so tough to be able to look at terrain from afar before you're standing right to it and being able to figure out if you can go through it or not. But you just... You always have to make the right decision. Don't be afraid to turn back and lose your elevation. Like if it gets too steep and in that loose terrain, don't push it too far. Um, you know, I've had places where I've had to put my, my bow on my backpack and use all four hands. And like I I was um, socking this great big mule deer in Colorado, and this has been quite a few years ago now. And I was uh, watching down at this giant typical, and I mean, he was... 32 34 and giant forks just a dream buck and he bedded in the perfect spot down in this uh like little patch of stunted uh, alpine trees and he was in there with another couple bucks and so I figured well creep down the wind's right but I got to be able to make it off this clip face to go down and so I'm looking down this chute and it kind of disappears out of sight it's like man can I make it down that or can I not and then all of a sudden I see a doe and a fawn and they're popping right out of the chute and coming at me. And I figured, well, if deer can make it up, but I can surely make it down. So I started down and there's no way those deer came from that shoot. They must've side-hilled over or something <laughs> or tricked me because yeah. I went down in that chute and it got vertical with a glacier in the bottom of it. Mm. And it almost got so sketchy then where I couldn't go back where I'd come from because I had committed too far and I was free climbing and, I almost got frozen where you get scared, where you can't make a move, where you're holding on and your adrenaline's rushing and you have to, like, catch your breath again and, like, keep climbing down. And I I made it down and out of there. But it it just reminded me that don't get myself in too steep a terrain. Don't side hill too steep
1: a terrain because one slip and that could be it in that country. Yeah, yeah. When I'm – anytime I'm working that steep stuff or those side hills, you know, I'm looking below me. So, okay, if I do slip and I fall, what's the result look like? Is there a cliff down there? That's what obviously freaks me out. If, you know, you have that slope and some scree or whatever, and then you got a cliff, you fall off that cliff, you're done. But if you have some sort of natural barrier that can catch you, worst case, I might try it just because I know it's, it's not too unsafe, but, uh, you're, you're always scouting it out like that. And okay, if I do fall where I'm going to end up. But, yeah, I was in that same scenario a couple of years ago, and I hate heights. I, I, I'll say it. I'm afraid of heights to a degree. I think everybody is. Mm-hmm. But I've, I've hunted some steep country, and I don't like it, but I'm still you know, going to get it done if I have to in that country and be safe about it. But I don't like it, and I try to stay out of that nasty stuff like you're talking about because it only takes getting scared once or maybe twice if you're dumb like me to, mm-hmm. to stay out of there. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's heights are nothing to, to be, you know – take lightly for sure see i'm afraid of lightning and heights i do all the high
0: stuff for the construction crew i'm always the high peaks the steeper country so the steepness doesn't bother me as much but that's almost more dangerous right as i feel so comfortable in that stuff that i push my limits pretty far because i don't get scared easy and so uh yeah like i definitely have to put myself in check in that steep terrain and make sure that i'm not pushing it too far because yeah no buck is worth dying for and i just getting back from lanai and hunting those lava rock canyons for those mouflon sheep I got clipped out a couple times. I saw a great three-quarter ram that was across this gnarly draw from me, and all I had to do was just get over there, and I could come from above that thing and put an arrow in him, and I'm trying to cross this gulch downwind of where he's at, uh, down gulch as it happened to be. And so uh, I dropped down off that thing, and I didn't hit the mega cliffs till the very bottom, and it dropped off till sheer cliffs. And so I had to drop down twice, and I got cliffed out twice where I had to climb totally back up my side. I never did find a way around that draw. Finally, later that night, I went up the draw, which would have been bad wind, but I was up high enough, and I could have crossed up there, but I ran out of time. But I got cliffed out twice where it was like, okay, I got to climb back up out of here. I can't push this any further. I'm going to be in real trouble. Uh, But yeah, the uh, cliffs and steep terrain... Uh, the danger is real in there. Man, you take one spill in that backcountry and yeah. even that rough terrain, like I'm not one that falls a lot, uh, but that those lava rocks over there, you could just be walking and kick those things and i actually went down twice like i fell twice over there Uh, not in steep terrain or not in cliffy stuff but just walking around with that lava rock but still if you go head first and into a pile of rocks you could you could hurt yourself pretty bad there i've got one that's healing up here from one of my spills that got me pretty good that scraped me up Uh, but yeah just um uh have to be real careful in in rough terrain like that making sure that you're taking your time and finding your
1: foot placements Yeah. Yeah. Especially like, like you said, with Hawaii, that stuff, it'll look like it's solid until you step on it and it just breaks away. It's dangerous. I mean, that's, uh, I call that stuff, bow eaters, because guys you fall and you hit your cam or you bend your cam and it's over. Mm Mm-hmm. And yeah, man, you got to be careful. And I've, I've by far taken my worst spills over there mm-hmm. than anywhere else. What are those little trees? Is it the
0: Kona? What are what are those little trees? And they're just little sticks that stick up, and they like grab your shoelaces or your shoes, or you trip over them. Yeah, I think it's lantana. Like is the it cats lantana? Claw, Yeah, the cat's claw. Stuff it could with... be, but I'm thinking of even like the little stunted mm. trees that you kind of kick out there. That those things are everywhere. Yeah, it's so dangerous. Trippers. Yeah. Yeah. yeah those maybe... things and the lava rock. I think that's what happened. Is I was. Just just moving through and just kicked or snagged my foot on one
1: of those. Yep. But yeah. Tripped you and tumbling over. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's the worst. Another thing I was going to bring up too is with, you know, no buck is worth dying for, but there's this buck I was going after and my only approach out of sight was on a steep side hill. And, you know, I was like, ah, let's try it. And I got to the kind of the point of no return where I couldn't go any farther and I was freaking out a little bit to go back. But, you know, on that, on that steep stuff in the mountains, to even try that is kind of foolish because I think we kicked rocks down anyway, and that was enough to spook that buck anyway. It's not going to work. If you, you know, in a lot of areas, if, if you have any sort of loose rock or anything on a steep side hill, it's not even worth trying an approach mm-hmm. to those bucks because all it takes is your foot like on the gravel, like, or like kicking a rock. They hear you. It's over. So true.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm hunting goats this year. And you have to remember in goat country, when I first hunted goats, like I've been able to hunt them 2013, I drew a tag and uh, mountain goats live in the, uh, the roughest, most rugged, extreme terrain that you can go bow hunt. And so I thought, you know, I'm so good at heights. I'm so good in the cliffs. I thought, well, I can go anywhere a goat can go. I cannot. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah. Those things yeah. play on slopes and butt each other around on sheer cliffs that would take me ropes to get to. And so yep. when you're goat hunting, it's really waiting for those goats to make it to a spot that you can get to. And also you have to worry if you shoot one and he rolls all the way down the mountain and you go pick up the pieces and parts of his horns, well, that wasn't really worth it anyways. <laughs> you know, and so like, uh, uh but uh, hunting those goats, I got to remember that this year, that it's all above treeline, all in the steep rocks and the steep terrain and maybe... Making sure that that goat's in the right spot where I can get to him and get to him safely and get myself up and down. But I'll make sure that I won't be pushing my limits too far on those goats. Yep. Yep. Keep myself safe. Sketchy stuff. Oh, super sketchy, man. So, uh... Those are some other dangers. You know, the other thing too, like that's not really talked about as we're talking about backcountry safety, we're running out of time, but a lot of it is just getting to your hunting zone across the West. There's so much traveling, like probably one of your greatest risks is just driving to your hunting zone. And so making sure like when I was in my younger years, I would really push my limits as far as sleep. And that, uh, uh driving is, is some of the most dangerous things. Like I would never fall asleep at the wheel, but you almost have your eyes open and your focus, like you're focused on the road. And all of a sudden your, your focus goes out and you can't see even with your eyes open and it's your brain trying to fall asleep with your eyes yeah. open. So it's like, that is more dangerous than, than, uh, uh, driving, you know, any, uh, like driving with alcohol or anything like driving drowsy is so dangerous. And so as we're traveling to and from our hunting spots and I get done with these hunts and I'm so tired trying to drive home, but it's just important. Just try, just, pull over and take a nap, yeah. pull over, take a 10 minute nap, take an hour nap. You'll still get to where you're going, set your alarm on your phone, but that little bit of sleep just wakes you up and now you can focus on the roadway again, but don't push it too far when you're driving to these hunting spots.
1: Yeah. those. I'm a cat napper. I don't know if you are too out hunting. I'll, I'll catch a cat nap anywhere I can, but it's amazing what those can do for a guy hunting or driving or whatever. Yeah. Pull over and take a 10 minute or 15 minute or whenever you wake up, like you said, and it's just why like nothing is worth rushing home, you know, to get home forty-five minutes sooner because you're in a hurry. Mm-hmm. It's just not worth it. And it's a sense of self-preservation too. I and mean, we've talked about horses too. That's another method of oh, right. of travel that uh, you have to really be careful uh, with. But I remember when I was working for the forest service i was riding this horse and kind of same thing i was super tired and you you let your guard down before you know it like i'm falling asleep on the horse and we're side hilling and we run into some bees and my horse gets stung and freaks out on a side hill and i was about to sleep wow and so it's just as dangerous as driving a vehicle you know those things i didn't think about that yeah no and you know the horse i, I was lucky enough i quick reflexes and i had the toes in my stirrups that's another thing i do so i can have i can bail quick you know on side hills i just make sure the tips of my toes are in the stirrups because, oh that's smart yeah because if i have to bail i can bail way quicker and i jumped for the uphill side and the, the horse went down over the, the edge and rolled but oh, he got yeah. his feet out you know under him again and then got up and around and got back to the trail and i walked my way the rest of the way out oh because, you're kidding yeah. that is so sketchy and so yeah the, the horse thing like Obviously, it's a very valuable tool for backcountry travel and getting in, you know, 10, 12, 15 miles and being fresh physically, you know, so you're fresh to hunt. But, you know, they have their challenges in their own as well. I um am... They scare the heck out of me. They're such large
0: animals and they're so spooky that I don't use them much. I know they're an awesome tool for elk and in the backcountry. So like, uh, me being a novice, like, what should I know about horses? I thought the toes and the stirrup is like a great suggestion. Like, like, what do I need to know about horses? Uh, what do I need to know to keep myself safe and make
1: good decisions? Like, uh, what would you relay to me being a novice being around horses? Yeah. I think for most guys, if, if you're coming out and you're going hunting you're going with an outfitter and you're on horseback or you rent horses and you're on horseback you don't know these horses you don't know how bomb proof they are or aren't and so what i like to do is i'll walk like the first stretch from the trailhead or whatever walk with my horse and just get my legs warmed up and get warmed up and and see the temperament of the horse and then maybe i'll get on and so i like to do that And then
0: that's smart. So you don't get on right away. You kind of
1: get a feel for the horse and its attitude and how it's going to react in things. If it's a new horse, hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, otherwise toes and stirrups and you're staying alert and you're keeping, I mean, you're looking for grizzly bears. You're, you're watching the other horses around you and seeing how your horse reacts to like maybe another horse freaking out. And if he's jumpy or get, you know, if I've had it too, horses that are afraid of their own shadow. So they're coming around the corner and they see their shadow. It casts just right on the trail or on a rock and they jump. And it's like this thing's, it's a time bomb <laughs> waiting to go off. I'm walking boys. I'm getting down and I'm walking because my life is, it's not worth it. It's not worth the risk. And, you know, usually horses ride out of the, you know, the gate, they're maybe they're barn sour too you're going away from the truck and they're extra amped up and excited too and once you get them tired out a little bit and into a groove down the trail they'll settle down but some horses are just bad like they're they'll jump at their own shadow and they'll go off road they won't follow the leader and these are horses that haven't seen a lot of trail time or haven't spent a lot of time in the mountains and it's like i have no use for them because you're just gonna get hurt it's just a matter of time
0: that's what's turned me off about horses is like people never give you their best horse. They always give you their horse they don't use as much, you know, so it's like, you're never getting a great horse as a novice. And it's just like, man, I just don't trust those things. Like you say, I've always got the ones that are really spooky. Uh, uh, and it, they just scare the heck out of me. I mean, they just weigh so much and they're so powerful and you just, you're like putting your life in their hands a lot of yeah. times. And so, uh, I just don't have a lot of trust built up for them. Now, some of you horse guys are really good and really comfortable with them, but that is not me.
1: Yeah. It's just, it's all calculating, you know, your cause and effect and you know what you see being around them helps obviously over the years and like this this last year I rented horses on my Wyoming hunt because just logistics and buddies I think Ike was busy so I couldn't get packed in and I was so far in there that I was like it's too big you know of a trip to get packed in and get packed out the next day but rent these horses show up to the trailhead and you know I tell the guy I'm like give me the best horses you got. <laughs> you know, he laughed. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to give you good ones. Yeah, they're, they're my best. They're not. They're not he's not going to give you his best horses. But ours, they, they wouldn't cross water. You know, like, because they hadn't crossed water. The, these horses, they came from, you know, a trail riding facility. And, yeah, they plod along at two miles an hour and follow the leader, which they're great for, plodding down the trail. But on these trail rides all summer, they're, they're not crossing one stitch of water. And so that was a challenge in itself, almost had a giant horse wreck blow up at the first decent crick crossing. And it's just like, you know, at that point, you're like, why, why did I do this? Like these stupid things, I would way rather get packed in. But but it's all about trade-offs, right? That's, that's what it all boils down to. And, you know, you don't want a young horse either. You want a horse that has time in the mountains. And so you got to watch for that too. And I know, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, Joe my camera guy with me we were on a, a, a packing trip and Ike was using uh, some stock from a, a friend and he had like a four-year-old colt in there. Is that a colt by then for I don't know but a young horse that hadn't had a ton of time in the mountains and he trailed him in just to get practice and I'm watching this horse and you know he's cutting corners on switchbacks and he can't follow the leader and he's off in the brush and it's like pfft, I ain't getting on that thing. And, you know, we, we didn't have to. But on the way out, we had a logistical issue. I call Ike, and I was like, hey, we killed this bull. We need, you know, we need out. And he's like, well, you know, I th- threw a couple shoes on the way out. We got to get these things shod before I can come back in. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll, you know, I'm fine with walking out as long as I don't have to carry meat 12 miles. I'm fine. I can walk out. It's nothing with, you know, no backpack. And so he shows up, and he's got this horse, this 4-year-old, and because it's all we got, he's like, "This is all I got. If you guys want to ride, you can. If not, you don't have to." And I'm looking at this thing, and I was like, "Nope, I'm walking." And Joe was like, "I'll ride," right. and like, "Go for it!" But you got to be careful on that thing. And sure enough, I mean, we were 200 yards from the camp, leaving camp, and uh, you know that horse got out in front, so he's in a hurry to get back. So Joe's on him, headed back to the truck. And Ike's behind him, and Ike wanted to get in the, you know, the, the lead with his horse because his horse was pretty bomb-proof, his riding horse, and he wanted the lead too just, just for the fact that, like, if you run into a grizzly bear on a horse, you don't want a young horse you know, running into a grizzly bear. You want a, a trail-hardened veteran horse that's been in the backcountry a ton and been around bears to, to lead the way and so that's why we switched but we ended up on a side hill and that the antlers were riding crooked you know the first 400 yards from the from leaving you can have issues and yeah long story short this horse went over backwards Mm. and down off the side hill and like skidded down this log on on the saddle like feet in the air skidding down the mountain like on this log and joe lucky enough he fell into the root wad of this tree so it's kind of like a you know a a ditch in a hole from the root wad and the horse went right over him oh my gosh! but he was protected oh my gosh! and so just talk about luck he had a scratch on his shoulder and and you know god's looking out for you boy because that you could have been dead so easily or a broken shoulder or a season-ending injury the list goes on and on and on and so it's like just those scenarios like it's not worth it just walk mm-hmm. just just nut up and walk the 12 miles out And just save yourself the headache because it can be over like that. Mm -hmm. You know, you hear enough stories of guys breaking their backs on horses and it's just, it's not worth it. Just walk.
0: Like a lot of this comes down to the decisions you make. Yeah. Just like that decision where you said, nope, I'm not riding that horse or whatever the case is like a lot of it, it is self-preservation and it is just good decision-making in all this. And it isn't black and white as you're moving through the woods and you're choosing a camping location. And as you're looking around, it's not going to be so black and white, or there isn't going to be a perfect spot or a perfect approach or like, you just have to make good decisions. Like uh, you have to have the the right head on your shoulders to be able to slow things down, make good decisions for self-preservation and you know, you have to live to hunt another day. The first three rules of hunting the backcountry are safety, safety, and safety. Like you have to make good decisions. And um, uh, so I think that's like the the core component of it is making those good decisions, keeping yourself safe, making sure that you're returning home to your family. And part of the the fun of these backcountry hunts is that it is wild country, that we are having a wild adventure, but you, you can't have a wild adventure. Like it's it's the price of admission. Like there's going to be a little danger, an element of danger on these hunts. And it's kind of what makes you a little bit nervous before leaving on these hunts or when you're packing your bags that, you know that there is present danger that you're going to have to deal with and make good decisions and think on your feet. Like it's part of the fun of it, but just remember it as we're coming into this, uh, this fall season that, that no buck or bull is worth dying for that. You have to keep yourself safe. You have to make good decisions and, um, uh, I, I think that's at the core of like uh, uh, backcountry savvy is just like like that alone is um, just really thinking about your next move and thinking about the possible dangers and, and uh, really keeping yourself safe. and then it makes for a really
1: good adventure when you get back. It does, it does. This is the type of adventure I thrive off of and I love and like you said, leaving that trailhead with a lump on your throat a little bit because you want to test yourself. You know, if you're, if you're doing things or going on hunts, if you're hunting a lot that you're just floating by and, and you're just there and yeah, maybe you kill and maybe you don't, but if you really want to get better, if you really want to grow as a bow hunter, you have to get out of your comfort zone. And so that's a part of it and the adventure part of it. But yeah, safety is just so crazy, crazy important. And I, like I tell my camera guys, I was like, we are one, drop of the camera away from going home. We are one nick of a rock or a knife blade on my bowstring from going home. We are one drop of my bow and bending my cam from going home. There's all these little things that can totally shut it all down. And the only option you have is to turn right back around and go home. And so, so you just have to be like hyper conscious of, of these things. And especially when you're in Grizz country, every, the, the, the ante is upped. So you better be on your A game because you can go home so quickly by just the smallest mistake. Everything down to your bowstring. That's one thing I, I never do is I never put my bowstring in the dirt. It, my bowstring is is like my pistol. I'm, I'm not going to leave it in the dirt. I'm going to have it holstered. I'm going to have be conscious of where it is at all times because one little nick of your bowstring and it's over. So over. It's over. over. Yep. And so I'll even put a, you know, a, a case, a bouquet, a bow. Yeah, string protector yeah, or whatever. Yeah, on yeah. my bow traveling in or just anything That's to smart. protect that string and never, never put your string in the dirt.
0: Yep. So uh, good rules to yeah. live by. And yep. watch that bottom cam too, setting yeah. that bottom cam in the dirt, uh, dinging that bottom cam, uh, being able to inspect your bow and look for damages or look for anything going wrong. Uh, I think that's important too but yeah there's um plenty of challenges and plenty of things to look out for but it it's why we love it so much too is it yep. it is wild it is an adventure and uh, you do have to keep your wits about you make good decisions and then you know keep your team safe too it's if you're hunting with multiple people or cameraman you're really not splitting up too much but you have to make them aware of uh uh the the ramifications uh, the consequences of their actions and making good decisions and doing what they're supposed to be doing um you know and that goes even for playing with a knife or a hatchet or whatever the case is like you have to look out for that stuff like you say you're one cut away you're one injury one drop of the camera one drop of the bow from going home but i think uh, also alongside with that is like when you're hunting with buddies is really making a good hunt plan like it's really easy to leave off in the morning and everybody's going their own directions and you don't even have a plan to meet up or you don't have a plan for what if i don't see you at night where are you at are you planning yeah. that you are you can stay overnight do you have everything you need where are we going to meet up if if we don't meet at this spot like where is are we both going to head back to the truck or are we going to look for each other back here but just having a discussion about these items and then I haven't been the best throughout the years of telling people where I'm going or my wife where I'm going or uh you know she knows which state I'm in but that's about it but I, I do think it's important to write down kind of your hunt plan and where you'll be so at least somebody knows and then yeah, I just, I know with my buddies is that I want to make a rock solid plan because nothing gets in the way of my hunt more than worrying about somebody else. Like having a buddy out there and he didn't come back to camp and I was like, oh, we didn't even talk about this. He's not back at camp. Do I need to look for him? Do I need, so just really making a plan for meeting up and communication too, I think is really important when you're
1: hunting with a group of guys. Yeah, that's, that's huge. And, and if you can't, I mean, bring it in, reach so you can yep. you can send a message anywhere. Oh, it's satellite a messenger satellite. for
0: like 30 bucks a month or yeah. whatever it is. You know that you have satellite communication. That's a game changer. It we is. didn't have that when we started, yep. and we have it now, <laughs> and it's – You know, I actually didn't light up my Delorme for hunting Hawaii, and I should have because it's gnarly terrain and a guy can get in real trouble. But I'm going to make sure that I always have that thing turned on, always have it with me because it
1: is a safety issue. For sure. I, I laugh about it because back in the day we didn't have any of this stuff. And how much time was actually wasted and how much energy was wasted, you know, looking for a backpack that I dropped 400 yards back on a stock. Now I'll get on my Onyx, drop a pin where my pack is, and go. Yep. It, but I like to keep my pack with me. Or trying to find a buddy. Or you get split up, and you have no means of communication. You have no plan. Just the hours and time wasted and the, the hassle, it's all in, in a satellite message mm-hmm.
0: now. Work with your satellite messenger before you leave, too, yes. to make sure that you have a good connection. We had a trouble in Alaska up there where we had actually tried it out. But he had texted from his phone number. I had texted him back through his phone number. And then when you get out of service or like his DeLorme wasn't tied to a phone message then, it was tied to an email or there was some... Specification. There was something there that went haywire. So we, we all got up to Alaska where we have no reception. And our plan was to touch bases on the messenger. And all of a sudden, we had the wrong contacts for each other. We didn't have the, you know, at Garmin dot yes. message. We had a phone number for it. And the phone number wasn't working. So we couldn't connect. So we actually, the only way we connected was we both messaged my wife that then put us in touch with each other. But we were basically in the bush of Alaska and couldn't meet up with each other and had no messaging back and forth because we had tried it out on our phones or I can't remember exactly, but just test that thing. Make sure you've got everybody's contact and that you're good to go. And then also on those DeLorms or any of those satellite messengers, you have to check for your messages. Sometimes they can come in hours later. And so you have to get in the habit of checking your messages where it checks the satellite or pings the satellite so then you can get your
1: messages. So that's important too. Yep, definitely. That's a good point. The Garmin thing i coming in and we i can't remember what it was but a new account or whatever and i i couldn't get a hold of him because his account changed and so i had nothing and so yeah i think i i reached somebody in the office and then they contacted him and then they messaged me his new at garmin address and that's how we we did it but yeah it's that's easy to do so easy to do. yep for sure
0: All right, Dan. Um, Yeah, it's another episode. Um, Thanks again, man. I appreciate you. Uh, Good to be at the office. Let's see if we can knock a couple of these things out. Heck yeah, let's do it. Always good. Sounds good. All
1: right.